Hey guys, what's up? I'm Jordan Crook, and I'm the managing editor here at TechCrunch. I spend most of my days worrying about TechCrunch events, and a big part of my job is determining which speakers would bring the most value to the TechCrunch audience. The ones that can teach entrepreneurs something or tell stories about what they've been through. As you probably know, coronavirus is trying to get in my way, but I'm not gonna let that happen. That's why we're launching a brand new virtual speaker series called Extra Crunch Live. Extra Crunch Live, in a nutshell, is a Zoom call with some of the best and brightest minds in tech, from entrepreneurs to investors. Here's how it's gonna work. We're gonna hop on a Zoom call, broadcast that Zoom call to YouTube. I'll ask some questions, but more importantly, you'll also be able to ask your own questions. So who are we talking to? Well. This week alone, we'll be talking to Aileen Lee and Ted Wang, who are partners at Cowboy Ventures. And later this week, we'll be talking to Charles Hudson, who is a total pre-seed wizard. In the coming weeks, we'll have guests like Mitch and Frida Kapoor, Rulof Botha, Hunter Walk, Mark Cuban, and Kirsten Green. And that's just the tip of the iceberg. We are going big on this, so expect to see many, many more speakers lined up in the coming weeks. Extra Crunch Live is one of the many features that comes along with an Extra Crunch membership, as well as a hundred plus in-depth articles that answer the questions that I think keep entrepreneurs up at night. You can try your first month of Extra Crunch for just $1. Equity listeners can get 50% off their first year by using the code equity. So sign up, just go to techcrunch.com slash subscribe. I'm really, really excited about Extra Crunch Live, and I hope you are too. So, see you there. Hello and welcome back to Equity, TechCrunch's venture capital-focused podcast where we unpack the numbers behind the headlines. As always, I am Alex Wilhelm and I am joined by two of my favorite people in the entire world, one of whom is Danny Crichton, TechCrunch's managing editor. Danny, how are you? Good morning, Alex. How are you? I'm good. Uh, You're wearing a Stanford sweatshirt, I see. The same Stanford sweatshirt I wear every single day. I do wash it every five days, though. Why why five days and not seven? I feel like it's an odd rotation cycle there. You try to keep yourself clean and 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 and, and viable these days. <laughs> I want to I want to make a joke about Stanford, but also I feel like it's kind of mean because we're all sad because we're all locked inside. So I'll let it ride this week. Tosh, you're also here. You're one of our venture capital reporters. How's life? How are you? I'm doing well. Wearing a TC sweatshirt just to rep. So way more on brand. <laughs> yes, I am on brand as hell. Depends which brand we're pushing these days, but it's more on brand than mine. <laughs> exactly. But no, I'm do- I'm doing good. Good, good, good. I'm proud that we're all at least, you know, clothed enough to be on a Zoom to do the show. Good job, everybody. It's been a long <laughs> stretch of working from home. And I think we're all... Minus my PJs. <laughs> I wasn't going to bring that up. Um, different levels of formality, for sure. Okay, but let's let's drop all that. Let's get into this. We're going to start off with Y Combinator's latest news that they're going to move the next class to be entirely virtual. Danny, first observations about this, impressions, and I'm curious if you think it's a smart idea. Of course, uh, Y Combinator for its winter batch for their demo day went all remote a couple of weeks ago. And and so they announced uh, this week that they're actually going to move the entire program to be remote. And that includes everything from office hours to the interviews they do for the intake of new startups to evening talks where they bring in speakers 
And so it, it, it's interesting to see as an experiment, like, you know, as, as an exogenous, you know, shock to the system, we're suddenly going to see if 240 startups or however many they choose for the summer batch, what's going to happen if it's fully remote? You know, they're not coming to Mountain View or San Francisco. They're not going to be local. They're not going to have that kind of in-person network effect. And so the question to me is, you know, do, do the startups do worse? Do they do better? Are they more focused? Do they have more time? And I'm, I'm going to be very curious in the fall to see the outcome here. You know, before Y Combinator had flexed one of its strengths as going to Bangalore to do its international interviews, they said it increased their pool, it increased the diversity of startups. So now that it's losing that, I also am interested to see how that plays out in international startups. I'm also curious to see what this does to San Francisco and the Bay Area as the pulsating heart of kind of startups around the world, because I think YC brings people there, indoctrinates them in the the location, the people, the culture, the way of doing business, that set of investors. If everyone's remote, they can be, you know, anywhere. So does this disaggregate startups from Silicon Valley? Does it does it make it easier to build in Dallas or, or Bangalore or whatever? Uh, I, I hope so, but I don't think Silicon Valley would like to stop being the center of the universe. So I, maybe it won't be popular long-term among the investing class. Also, I, I feel like a data point that I'm waiting to hear from YC that we're definitely not going to get is how successful its first virtual demo day was in helping startups get that round of funding. I wonder if them seeing it this early that they're making the next classroom remote might signal in some way that it wasn't that bad, but I think that that's something that's still a question I have. I can provide one data point Please. on the last class of YC companies because uh, one of them raised money and they texted me today, I'm going to talk to them tomorrow. So Amazing. at least one of them closed around. That's, I have one too, so I think it's two. That's two. That's two. Uh, if you were in that YC class that had the virtual demo day, equitypod at techcrunch.com, we'd love to hear observations, notes, and other bits of news. Danny, you know, people always say that to make an investment commitment to really get that kind of you know confidence in the deal, you need to be in person. Everyone's pivoting to, to Zoom, to making deals over the internet. Does that favor seed companies or is that harder for early stage businesses? I think it's a real mix. I, I think growth actually is fairly easy because at a certain point, it's all metrics driven. And so as long as you have access to the data room, you can make decisions about growth, you know, AR multiples, et cetera. I think it, it's the pre-product market fit that's really hard, right? Post-product market fit, you still have a product people can use and people get excited about it. It's when you're only making a bet based on the founder and, and the founder's vision for a company where I think, you know, having that interaction in person where you can say, wow, this person's really has a lot of grit. They're going to go the distance. They have a big vision. I can see them selling the company to uh, new employees, you know, to other investors. I mean, that's when I was a VC, that was the number one thing I always took away from those early stage meetings is like, can you believe that this person can sell to a thousand other people, right? Because they can't mm. sell to me. How are they going to sell to, you know, the hundreds of other people that are, it takes to build a company? And I just think that's really hard to prove online. I, I, I don't sound good on Zoom. I don't think any of us sound good on Zoom. It's just not as interactive, <laughs> you know. Um, and so I, I think that it'll be trickier for those that are pre-product market fit. One bit of faith I have in YC is that they're, they're used to betting on founders that like have the ability to, to successfully pivot. Like they have a proven track record. Um, and it's like almost like cliche at this point that a YC company pivots you know, while it's in, in the accelerator. So, you know, hopefully that, that does them some, them good <laughs> in these next couple of months. One more thing about this, and then we should move on. But, you know, I think YC was relatively early on announcing they were going to make their demo day a virtual event, and then other people followed. I forget if that was due to where they were in the calendar or if YC was ahead in a product sense. But given this, I would not be surprised to see a number of other accelerators around the world fall off a similar path. 
And I wonder if that opens them up to, you know, a more diverse group of people. It's going to be interesting to see certainly a sea change uh, and one more in the COVID-19 era. But let's put a pin in that and move to my next point. Oh, I segued myself. Holy, holy crap. <laughs> Tosh, there's another accelerator <laughs> doing remote um, stuff. Wow. I didn't, I didn't read far enough ahead in the agenda. Please tell us what's going on. Yeah. So actually a Boston area VC firm, NextView Ventures, is launching a remote accelerator. It's first accelerator ever for startups. It's pretty straightforward. They're investing in less than 10 startups, 200,000 for 8% stake, no demo day, and again, all virtual. The part that I would love to talk about is that they kind of came out with this announcement and said, this is us proving that we're putting our money where our mouth is and still being open for business. They raised a fund earlier this year. So I just thought it was a a smart way to make to, to make do with what is Alex what's up why is there no demo day is, is that an on purpose choice is that a, a stylistic decision what's driving that yeah they they did say that their choice to make no demo day was a in a way realizing that YC 500 startups the traditional accelerator programs put too much focus on like the glam of demo day versus the actual utility I think there's also an opportunity where, you know, different companies are at very different stages. You have people who are just getting started. You have people who have a product in market, but maybe you don't have users. You have people who have users, you know, and, and demo day is really hard for all those different types of companies to present at the same time. So my, my assumption would be that NextView is going to look at a broader range of companies at the earliest stages. And so, you know, try to jam them all into a 90-day batch and say, hey... You know, this company's found a co-founder. Congratulations. Now go fundraise. This company just got a million users. You know, putting them all in the same kind of context is is a little strange. So I, I actually agree with this no demo day decision. And I think more and more accelerators, at least from what I've seen, are actually backing away from the kind of big box, you know, demo day like Y Combinator does. Well, I think they were they made a lot more sense when there was fewer companies. I think we've all talked about this with YC, that when it was kind of one day and there were enough companies you could actually remember their name, it made a bit more sense. But when it became like two stages, three days, I mean, it, it was just uh, getting hit over the head with a hammer, but it was all startups. So I, I like this. Uh, some math I just did. Uh, 200K for 8% values the firms at two and a half million. So these are obviously going to be baby companies, the earliest of stages. This is pre-seed money, effectively. Next few raised in January a 75 million fund. I wonder if we're going to see more VC firms starting to use that capital in this way versus cutting $1 million, $2 million checks into one company. This is a good way to kind of tiptoe other than the complete, like, I'm going to pause all investments. Yeah. I mean, 10 checks at 200K is you know $2 million. That's one lead seed round. Um, so it's just not that much money. But Tosh, uh, one thing we also know about this is that they're not going to lead follow-on rounds, but they will participate. I'm curious, do you have any color on why they're making that choice? Is it a signaling risk? They didn't want to choose one over the other? Want. I, I read it as them not wanting to say out the gate that they're going to put money into every startup that they fund in this first attempt at an accelerator. We saw YC do this in some way when it changed its pro rata investing strategy a couple of weeks ago. So maybe there's some conservatism in the accelerator world. Danny, what are your thoughts? I think, you know, you're always trying to control for signaling. You know, YC has a continuity and a growth branch that can actually do checks all the way through the series B and C. And so there's always this question of like, if YC, who has this knowledge of a startup, doesn't do the follow-on investment, why? Like, what do they know about a company? that new investors coming to the table don't know. 
Um, in 2019, when it was extraordinarily competitive, particularly for SaaS deals, a lot of people just said, look, I'm beating people. There's just so much going on that literally there was like bandwidth problems from a partnership. Like people just miss their own companies. And I heard this regularly from some VCs who were like, hey, we intercepted a Sequoia seed check that they just didn't know was doing well because there's so much going on that their partners kind of missed it. I don't think that's going to happen in 2020. Like that's just not a, a legitimate excuse when everything is calming down and people are kind of doubling down their own portfolios. Every VC knows what their portfolio is doing right now. They have to. And so if you're not going to do that follow-on round, it's an extremely negative signal today in a way that it wasn't even just a couple of months ago. Okay, that's fascinating. But I mean, they will take part in the pro rata, so they'll defend their percentage. You know, I'll be curious to see, Tosh, back to your point about YC's demo day and how those companies are doing. I would love to know how many of these NextView Ventures accelerator companies wind up raising, I guess, probably a, a serious seed round would be the next step for them. Yeah, yeah, totally. And it's not a shitty place to be for comp like seed companies that are probably really stressed right now to be in an accelerator program. Do you know how long the program itself is? It's three months and it's set up similar to YC in that they, they bring in executives to give them workshops and programming, et cetera, et cetera. Okay. Okay. Uh, and we want to, before we move on, mention that Natasha and I are writing more about Boston yes. and kind of Boston area. Go it's Terriers. Well, <laughs> I don't even get that reference. Explain Boston that. Boston University grad 2018, I guess. Is that your um, mascot? Yeah, we are the Terriers. The Terriers. I heard that yeah. correctly. Yeah. Like the small dogs. <laughs> like the, yeah. the Okay. The adorable yep, yep. but feisty small dog. <laughs> that's, that's, that is why she's wearing a TechCrunch sweatshirt. And terrier pajamas. Oh. <laughs> oh my gosh. You know, th this is actually an argument for why we should actually videotape these and put the videos of these on the internet. Don't give um, Chris any ideas, please. That's a good point. He'll start doing that. Um, anyways, uh, the we are going to be covering Boston more often. If you've read TechCrunch, we have been doing this. Um, we're going to be doing a monthly post on the on the city. Uh, and the kind of surrounding area, to be clear, startups, venture capital, the usual mix of stuff. So if you have tips or news about Boston startups, we would love to hear them. As always, equitypod at techcrunch.com. And look forward to that. Tosh, anything that I'm missing in that bit? No, please, please email us. I'm excited. Yes, please do. But only good stuff, no bad stuff. If you send in bad <laughs> stuff, we will read it alive on the show and make fun of you and you will be sad. All right. Um, we're going to pivot into a number of funding rounds here because even though it's a slower time of the year, there's a lot to talk about. And we're going to start with Miro. Uh, which Danny uh, argued for. So Danny, talk us through it. Yeah, so obviously with, you know, accelerators are all moving to a remote. Well, also all the workplaces are remote. So so Miro is a digital whiteboard. And the idea is, is similar to like how Notion is a place where teams can come together and collaborate on things like spreadsheets and, and CRMs and databases and stuff like this. Miro does that, but with a little bit more visual focus. So in the classic way that a startup you know, in the canonical product meeting, you're you're sort of drawing out a UI and discussing how it is and doing follow-ups and whatnot. Miro puts that online for distributed remote teams. And so it had previously raised 25 million bucks, but this week announced that it had raised 50 million more in a Series B led by Iconic Capital um, and at Excel and a bunch of others earlier on, including Steph Curry. Um, we're also involved in that round. But what I found was interesting about the company is that they reported that they are profitable mm -hmm. um, with 21,000 customers, including, quote, 80% of the Fortune 100, which if I'm doing my math, and that's really complicated math, and that's why I got a math degree, 80% of 100 is 80. You can mock me all you want for not doing my math right last week. It'll just hurt my feelings and make me sad. I mean, if that's what you want. Um, a couple thoughts about this. One, we now know what Steph Curry is doing in the off season. Apparently it's this. Two, profitable is an interesting point. I'm curious if it's actually like gap profitability or more like, you know, adjusted EBITDA or whatever. Regardless, it's impressive. And then, you know, $50 million, they're going to up their burn. They probably won't be profitable, Danny, for the next 
couple of quarters, they'll probably increase spend and, and run a deficit for a bit. It, I got the real impression reading through the story and talking to Ron Miller, who wrote the story, that the, the company has taken a very capital efficient approach to growth in a way that like you could imagine this being a multi-hundred million you know, venture capital invested company, and they're just not. They've been very, very judicious, huge number of customers for what seems to be a very kind of small and tiny company. And so it just goes to show you with modern kind of cloud infrastructure technology, how much you can kind of scale at reasonable cost. Uh, I'm, I'm curious, does this compete more with Figma or more with Mural, which is another kind of whiteboardy thing that raised money earlier this year? You mentioned the whiteboarding design aspect. Does it have design elements to it or is it more about collaboration? I think it's much more open collaboration in an office environment, right? So it includes everything from sales to product designers to marketers. I mean, anything that you would traditionally use a whiteboard for, which is pretty open-ended. Whereas Figma, I think, is much more tightly focused on the design market, designers working with designers as opposed to designers working with product or engineering or whatever. Totally. And just hearing you talk about them uh, brought something up to, in my mind that I've noticed. I've talked to a lot of people that are raising money, well, not a lot, but many people who have been raising money in the last couple of months. And I keep hearing what you just said. We've been capital efficient. We still have money. It appears that the businesses that are still raising are the ones that don't have the desperate need to. Data point. But Tosh, back to you. This was a refreshingly robust round that we saw today. And I also was just surprised I hadn't heard about it like on remote work Twitter. Um, I think I need to change my followers a little bit, but it just feels like this company kind of slid in out of nowhere. So I just wanted to, to give some fist bumps to it. I, I, the, the impression I got, I mean, again, 21,000 customers. My, my impression is it's very bottoms up. It's sort of like mm. the classic Dropbox model we've seen in enterprise where, you know, individual users are using it with other individual users in the enterprise. They start to collaborate. It starts to grow virally within the context of a company. Mm. And so in many ways, it's not been... From a Twitter, you know, remote work, Twitter has not been setting the agenda here or sort of selling it as like the next clubhouse. It's actually <laughs> no! a real business used by real things. I got it in there, Alex, despite your bans. Um, don't think I can't get stuff done in this place. But but I do think that they, they you know, again, it's just one of these successful, I've covered a couple of companies in the design space that are like this, where just people use them. They found them on the internet. It solves a real problem. They grow quietly. And then all of a sudden you're like, oh, wow, it's a multi-million dollar revenue business. It's a great company. Let's go invest. Yeah. And I think like journalists in general, we um, are starting to get more excited at the, the words capital efficient, to your point, Alex. Except for the I fact mean... that those, those words are so boring. <laughs> It's like no. a worse. It's like let me talk about a capital efficient marketplace, and I, I'm like, Please. okay, I'm edit that out. Go, go for it, Alex. You no, disagree. That's, that's that's like my my sexuality distilled into two words: capital efficient. <laughs> uh, speaking about capital efficient startups that just raised money, Single Ops out of Atlanta, a company that Danny was a big fan of. He talked about before the show. They're they're a vertical SaaS company focused on the outdoor care, like lawn care, tree care, that sort of thing. Apparently, a big market. Anywho, they had raised uh, only two and a half million before their six million dollar round, and had grown uh, all the way to thirty employees. And their ARR is up a hundred and some percent last year, hundred and twenty percent net retention, based out of Atlanta. Like there are companies out there that are doing a lot with little that don't show up like Notion does, you know, or whatever. Mm-hmm. But they're out there and uh, they're raising money because they look fantastic and they they're almost sure bets if they're sass with those numbers because they're just going to keep growing. So, okay, definitely, but that definitely. Oh. But I will say. Going on to Confluent, then there's the flip side, which is you have one-of-one companies that are so dominant in their fields that they get huge amounts of venture capital. So Confluent, for those who don't know, is sort of the literal definition of Apache Kafka, which is an open source library around what's known as event processing or event management. 
you know, you, you have transactions on an e-commerce website. Each of those transactions is an event. It has to get processed by different systems. Maybe your marketing has to be updated. Maybe sales has to get updated. Maybe you have to update carts. There's a bunch of stuff that has to happen with analytics. So you want to track all those things. Confluent makes sure that each of those events goes to the places that need to process what happened. And it's been super successful. It was still growing 100% year over year. And this week, the company announced that it had raised a $250 million Series E at a $4.5 billion valuation. And that's up from a $125 million Series D in 2019, which put it at $2.5 billion. So it actually has almost doubled its valuation in about a year. It just goes to show you that particularly for cloud infrastructure companies, even in this environment, huge amount of attraction and attention by VCs in that market. Yeah, well, I'm livid because I was actually prepped for the first time in my life to explain an open source enterprise company because I, I had a tweet literally <laughs> pulled up here and it was my thing to introduce and Denny's, he stole it from me and then read my notes. So in, just do that back with my voice. Alex, um, I have a question for you yes. though. In terms of like it being an IPO ready company, why why are you imagining that? Why do you think that? When do you think it's going to go public? If I recall, they dropped some bookings numbers and I, I think that if you look at their growth rates over time, 140% around the time of their Series D, and then uh, over 100% last year, you can kind of like do the rough math and see that it's going to be about IPO size. And certainly if it's raising this kind of money in this climate, its economics have to be reasonably good. And so you put reasonable economics next to IPO kind of scale, and it's a business that could be ready to go public. However, if you raise a quarter billion dollars, you don't have to go public. You have tons of cash. So I'm thinking, you know, H2 2021 on this one, but it's, you know, a business that in a different era would probably be either already public or going public. And so even, even now in this new environment, people are going to hold off on IPOs, which makes some sense given kind of the market that we're seeing. But I like to keep tabs on, on who's big enough to actually be of scale. Well, and it's amazing because Confluence is only a couple of years old. It's actually a 2014 company has a thousand employees. So it's only about five, six, six oh, years wow. old, and it's already at a four and a half billion valuation in the enterprise space. So that that's actually really, really rapid growth. As Alex said, I think it's well in its course to an IPO in a couple of years. It's it's also one of those rounds that like I just I, I'd forgotten that it existed. And then it came up and I had to ask people on Twitter, like, what does Confluent do? I forget. And people explained it to me and I felt very foolish. But like there's still enough deals that you can forget about them, which is a good thing that the market's being that quick. Tosh, you have the next one. We're gonna talk about Pepper. And uh, we're going to go from the enterprise to the consumer and to the much smaller stage companies. What's up? Yeah, so Pepper is a Denver-based startup that is basically a challenger to third love. It creates bras for small-chested women, and it's kind of aiming at this problem that I believe the statistic is something around 80% of women have ill-fitted bras. Super hard to find the right size, even if you try it in real life. You know, happy to see a startup in a secondary market raise money. Two million is a good bit, and she said sales haven't changed that much. Don't know how long that's going to last, but happy, happy for them. Yeah, so Third Love has been a, a, a big kind of success story, right? Tosh, do you recall how, how big it's gotten? It's raised a bunch of money. Its valuation's huge, right? Right. Yeah. They, they. I think they're the most well-funded startup in the space, trying to innovate on like the way that people buy bras. Third Love has announced layoffs recently, and I believe cited just like decline in sales overall. Yeah. So I thought that was interesting because it's not like we can go to a store and, and buy bras now. So there's there's something there to think about. I presume that Pepper has a way to um, measure yourself, get fitted virtually, because the, the idea here is a better fitting piece of clothing, right? Yeah, they, they launched some virtual one on one consultations and they have a they have a quiz. It's pretty standard 
for um, all bra startups in the space to to have that feature um, and be D2C. But I think the part with, about Pepper that really stood out to me was that it's not basing its design or sizes on like the classic molds of cup sizes in the um, bra industry. It's kind of starting from scratch. The uh, co-founder, Jacqueline Fu, she based the first prototype off of her own self. And I thought that that was an interesting way to just like start to iterate on the product, more realistic way maybe. So a question about this. Given that there's now a couple of startups that have learned how to better fit people, right? Because I've been reading about this uh, bra fitting issue for, for years and years and years, but how bras don't fit and how they're so uncomfortable and how they're just miserable. Um, are, are there still people not buying their their items this way? Because it seems like a much better method to go shopping for yourself than what was available before. So is it like the now de facto way or are some people still buying the old fashioned way? I think it's like a culture thing. I feel like personally, I've never bought anyone, anything from online. I don't know how much I trust a quiz. Yeah, I don't know. So that's like I, I would love for that to be the future, and it probably is. If if you know, social distancing is still a thing for longer than we expect. I I still think personally the stigma against not trying it on in real life is mm-hmm. is, is enough to stop me from from buying online. Well, you'll be our test case then when you jump into the DTC e-commerce world here. <laughs> let us know because it'll be like a, like a sea change in the industry. It really uh, it's will. A cool, it's a cool idea. It was two million, right? Yes. Okay. Now, next up is human capital, and this is going to be a little bit of a controversial one. Human capital raised $15 million. Jordan Crook covered this for the site. Human capital is, is a weird company. It, it's a bit of a hybrid. It's a mix. It's partially a VC fund. It's part of a recruiting business. But other, like uh, unlike other talent agencies, it doesn't do actors and producers and that sort of thing. Instead, it deals with a very particular form of talent called engineers, which if you know anything about startups, you realize how, how they are the... The, I don't know. They the engineer the future. Get. Yes. Yes. I don't know if I'd call them the future. They're more the present, but they're very hard to get. And up until five minutes ago, everyone wanted to hire as many as they could, and they all commanded very high salaries. And so there was a talent competition for them. So if you take a talent agency and put engineers in it, they help place them, generate the correct salary for them, help them argue for their real value, and of course, take a cut of their first year's uh, income. Now, we had some thoughts about this. We're going to go around in a circle, and we're going to start with Tosh. Weigh okay. in, please. All right. So. I guess I'll start with like my negative take and then I'll circle back with some optimism at the end. (laughs) But I think engineers right now are some of the most safe from these massive layoffs. So I guess it was just frustrating to see. Um, It makes sense that human capital went into this business because engineers are such lucrative, important gets for companies. But I do feel like they're some of the most safe. Um, Human capital goes to universities. There are just a lot of attention towards engineers. So I would love to see someone, you know, putting putting their efforts towards other categories, especially now. I, I don't know how many people are, are hiring new engineers other than kind of keep their current ones and keep them tight. Well, people are probably always hiring engineers to some capacity because they're always on the on the hunt for, for very, very high-end talent. And I do not want to get into the 10x engineer argument because I think we've all seen that on Twitter enough times. But one thing we do know as a fact is that certain large tech companies often pay individual ICs in their engineering departments a ton of money. Because they are fantastic and they are people that they desperately want to hold on to. There's, if you go back in time to like 2014, you can find like BI stories like, you know, Google pays this engineer $5 million a year not to leave. Whatever. For that class of engineer, I get this. If you're one of like the top, I don't know, Danny, 0.01% of the engineering talent in the world, it makes a lot of sense. But I'm curious if this is actually targeted at a bigger band of the engineering world. And if that, that guess made more sense before the economy got both legs kicked out from underneath it and face planted. And so when the layoffs start, how does this hold up? 
I've always liked the space, but I, I will say I'm also very like strategically negative on it. You know, there's a lot of unique properties to how he, uh, Hollywood works. So Human Capital is actually backed by Michael Ovitz, who famously started Creative Artists Agencies, a CAA, which is one of the major, major talent agencies in Hollywood. What makes Hollywood talent agencies so unique is that, first of all, you have the superstar effect, which is what you're sort of identifying, which is some people are made a, a F ton of money. Um, helping our our editor out there, our, our producer Chris Gates. <laughs> he wanted to, to say close that one out, but he didn't. Yeah, <laughs> you create work for other people, Alex, and I deal with that all the time. <laughs> but nonetheless, uh, what you see in that world is like, look, there are certain uh, actors, actresses who are paid twenty, thirty million dollars on a single movie, and not just on a single movie, they're only working for three or four months on that project, and then you have to go on to the next project. A, B. For most of those folks, you have also to career manage. It's not enough to just get the next job. You're also looking to get an Oscar. You're looking to be in the the next hot film. Netflix has a new series. You want to have a recurring role. Um, there's all this stuff that you do as a talent agency in Hollywood to sort of manage careers for the long term. In engineering, you don't want any churn, right? So you get $20 million or whatever, but that hopefully that Google engineer is sticking around for five to six years. So they're not looking for a new position every three to four months. So you don't have that same sort of turnover. And then second, I just think the universe of, of engineers who really make that sum of the cash is, is quite limited. I mean, it's more equity anyway. Uh, you know, the big bucks, if you will, in, 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 in the Valley these days is an equity in early stage companies where you win. I mean, if you're one of the early employees, early engineers at Uber, you're probably okay yeah. doing, doing fine in life. But that brings us back to the idea of what, what uh, human capital does. They do have a venture element. They do have an investing side. And they do like to put money into companies founded by engineers that have gone through the program. So they do have some way to lay, lay chips in, or bets down on a longer term return. The other side of this is I, I do think there's a lot of work to be done in uh, I would call it the mid-range roles. So I think the, the junior hiring roles, so straight out of college into like Google or Facebook, that's pretty well done today. What's missing is like I would call it the three years of experience and 10 years of experience. So people who haven't made director level aren't VP yet, but are uh, experienced enough that they're not entry level anymore. And so they need more career management. That's actually kind of a focus for free agency, which I've written about in the past. I actually think there's a lot of money in that. I would call it like a bulge bracket. But there's a lot of people who have some years of experience who are trying to move up, trying to find the best career path. They want to become a senior leader. And there's some education elements to that. There's some strategic career decisions that they need to make in order to make those careers happen. And there's, there's a lot to be done there. Danny, I completely agree with with what's like with the work that's left to be done. I think that's why I'm so confused that human capital is starting off by sourcing engineers at university campuses. Not to say that those engineers are are you know not equipped, but it, it's it's is more of the entry level space. Would love to know like where they're recruiting from, how much they're thinking about diversity of recruitment. They've placed I think five thousand people in jobs. So because they're starting off at universities is the reason why I'm a little confused because I feel like there's no shortage of people trying to help engineers get their first job out of school. <laughs> yeah, if you look at the CS enrollment of like just American universities over time, you see a dramatic increase, you know, in total enrollment graduation. So theoretically this talent crunch should be maybe lessening in time, which would I think chip away at this idea, but I I'll say I learned what CAA was and a talent agency. I didn't know actually what those things were, so Jordan Crook had to teach me. So that was fun. But uh, we're going to move on. They say you should buy the dip, uh, but in this case, VCs literally did so and dip raised a bunch of money. So, Danny, what is uh, what's the news? 
a $2.3 million round led by DeFi Partners invested in a company called literally The Dip. So a little on the nose, but The, the Dip is a subscription-only entertainment news startup, and it's focused on, it's basically a subscription newsletter. It's the Ben Thompson of reality TV is sort of the, the best <laughs> I way I can it. focus on it, <laughs> which is for people who are absolutely obsessed and her deep audience members of, of the reality TV genre, I will admit to being a coastal elite and having never watched reality TV in my entire life. I've never seen an episode of anything. But but uh, some people have, and some people are really obsessed with it. And so founders who come out of a couple other media companies are, are looking to create sort of the next generation subscription newsletter for, for the reality TV space. So I want to make fun of you, Danny, for not having seen any reality TV, but I'm struggling to come up with what I've seen. I've seen probably three episodes of Survivor in my life. I think I probably saw one or two episodes of American Idol back when I was a teen. That oh my god, be. guys, Love Island is so big. Never heard of it. That's, that's oh the god. thing. Well, I only found like... out recently there was more than one season of Survivor, which tells you what kind of rock <laughs> I'm living under. <laughs> the best rock ever. Also, by the way, sorry for stealing your intro, but you stole my notes. It was only fair. I was going to make fun of the intro. What's great about this company, um, founded by uh, two uh, prominent women, so, so Kate Ward was editor-in-chief of, of Bustle, and Lindsay Mannering, who was the uh, senior vice president of editorial strategy at Bustle's parent company. And so I think what you're seeing is an opportunity for, for folks. Bustle has had some layoffs. I don't, I don't think they were related to it. Bustle did have some layoffs in the last couple of weeks. But obviously, the media space has been traumatized. So it's absolutely amazing to see not only new media companies getting formed, but new media companies getting formed with two and, almost $2.5 million of seed capital underway. Yeah, I completely agree. And I think, you know, to the to the Ben Thompson point, we, I imagine we'll see a lot more of these specialty outlets popping up, bringing those followers from from Bustle. Another startup in the space that I wanted to point at is the Juggernaut. In the reality TV discussion to space? <laughs> Not the, in the specialty publication online only okay. news startup <laughs> yeah. space. The Juggernaut, it's for South Asian Americans and Precursor invested in it. So that's what kind of brought me to it recently. And they have some pretty high profile writers, writers um, who've worked for the New York Times, Bon Appetit. I, I, I just got excited when I saw that recently. Well, I think the difference now between media investment in 2020 versus 2016, 2014, back in the day, it was like, we're really good at like hacking Facebook and getting viral engagement and doing a million page views on this article. And we're going to scale this to a thousand writers and we're going to become the next big thing. Instead, raise less money, have a subscription focus. Like this is thing people are going right. to pay for from kind of the day one. And then you have a essentially a SaaS business built around content, which can be just fine. And it can, I mean, theoretically, it can kick off a lot of cash as SaaS businesses are, are want to do when they're efficient. So I think it's pretty neat. I think that's what made me particularly sad when I heard about the protocol layoffs. I mean, there were so many reasons why those were sad to hear about. But yeah, that, that was an example of a business through Politico that started hoping to bet on subscriptions versus ads. So it was really sad. Well, and obviously, we at TechCrunch have also moved towards subscription as well. And while we can't say specific numbers without getting clearance from at least like 25 departments at our parent company, <laughs> what I can say is we had record <laughs> revenues the last two weeks. So, I mean, obviously, one of the things that's amazing is to see how many people are willing to fund journalism, fund great writing, and, and actually put their money where their mouth is. Yeah. Uh, th thank you to everyone who's on ExtraCrunch. It's really, it's awesome. I don't know. This is the first time I've ever written for a site that had a paywall, like okay. ever. And uh, I, I didn't know if it was going to be easy or hard or I was going to feel like a jerk or I, I was actually a little bit scared, but I decided to just kind of go for it because what other choice, you know, is there in this new world where advertising revenue is worth zero? And it's been a blast, actually. It's actually kind of fun because you can write much longer, more dorky stuff. Like I can go super dorky all the time and no one complains. Um, it's lovely. Uh, before no we one go. Complains. Oh, 
Well, <laughs> my editors complain occasionally. Danny <laughs> mentioned earlier that I'm a bit of a handful of times. I do turn in sometimes longer things than I should. But before we jump into the sad part of the show, which we're going to have to go through pretty quickly here, Tosh, can you give us a couple of reality TV wrecks of things that are oh currently playing that we might want to see or that equity listeners might want to give a shot? You said Love Island. Yeah, Love Island is really good. Okay. Um, I don't recommend Too Hot to Handle, and I'm not going to explain why. If you watch the promo, it will answer all the questions for you. And is I guess it a Tweeby show or, or, or a Tweeby show? Sorry, what was that, Danny? Is it a, is it a Tweeby show? I, I actually don't know how to say the name. Queeby. Queeby. Um, <laughs> so, all right, Love Island is the show to watch, according to Natasha Mascarenas. She's at nmask underscore on Twitter. Yes. <laughs> Great. No, Believe in the Terriers. <laughs> oh Tosh God. is here for the early stage coverage and apparently reality TV, turns out. All right, know. guys, let's let's get through this relatively quickly. The, one of the biggest news stories of the week was that Magic Leap, a company we've covered on this program so many times, is laying off about half of its workforce or around 1,000 people. Magic Leap, of course, is based in Florida, was working in the, art, um, not artificial, the augmented reality space. Spectacles for your face, nerd goggles, if you will. Uh, they finally launched a developer kit some time ago, maybe about a year, I think. It was about uh, $2,300. They only sold thousands of them, far under expectations, revenue, not where it wanted to be. Huge burn rate, didn't sell the company, layoffs. Um, we could have spent an hour talking about this, but a quick round of impressions. Tosh, were you surprised to see this news? Was not surprised. Um, my first thought was, this is a classic example of investors that may have let a company fly under the radar buckle down and, and make some cuts. But then I also was just so shook to see how much they've genuinely raised. So investors were in some way were paying attention, were continuing to fund and didn't see a problem in it. So somewhat of a head scratch, but also somewhat expected. Yeah. How did they get to be so big without so a product big. that was making money? Like Danny, how does that happen? I think uh, VR, AR, it's, it's similar to a lot of other hardware spaces, right? We see this in quantum computing. I think we see this in um, hardware, like uh, uh, smartwatches, uh, where there's a huge number of massively funded companies that kind of collapsed. The reality is, is hardware is really hard. It's built into the name, but it's also built into the supply chains, the heart, you know, the, the amount of talent you need in order to create these devices. So in AR, VR, you have everyone from visual perception, you know, experts who can figure out how your eyes see stuff on these screens to actually building the device itself, the supply chains in China actually get these devices to consumers, sales and marketing. Like it takes huge teams to build these things. And as you've seen, it raised $2.6 billion and sold less than 6,000 units. Well, at, at that time. At that time, when those numbers were released. And so, again, I think, you know, Facebook has put some serious dollars behind ARVR in recent years. I think we see a couple of other large companies. To my mind, that is a space that is, I don't want to say reserved, I would never say that, uh, but like is very hard for startups to, to get yeah, into. The capital requirements are so high, the risk is so the high. The capital requirements are really yeah, high. Exactly. I will say, though, I'm thinking about buying VR so I can play F1 2019 with uh, with VR on. Sounds awesome. But I would also look really dumb. So I don't know how to kind of balance that out. We're going to do two last quick ones and then we're going to go Lambda, more cuts. Danny, do you want to give us the thumbnail on that? There are more cuts at Lambda. So uh, the company has laid off 19 roles and has cut back on executive pay, which is a little surprising because I, I think most of us expected the coding bootcamp space would actually do super well in the context of COVID-19. But uh, I think specifically because of Lando School's uh, revenue model, which is uh, an income share agreement, they actually need graduates to graduate and get jobs in order to get paid back. I think this is more of a cash flow kind of situation than a, a broader statement on the education space. Yeah, well, when, I, when I saw that, I reached out to one of their competitors, Springboard, and the CEO said something along the lines of like, our costs are half of Lambda's. And it was, yeah, another 
example of how it's probably not a ed tech issue, but a f- business fundamental, just to echo your point. Yeah, I'm, I'm going to be fascinated to see what ed tech companies in six months have like tripled in size. And I want to write about all of them. Story coming up on oh. Extra Crunch. <laughs> there, there you go. That was, a, that was a softball for you, Tosh. I didn't, uh, didn't even know I was throwing that one. Um, that was legitimately me being curious. Okay. Um, and finally, we're going to wrap up with uh, the last little bit of bad news, which is about Casper and how Europeans now have to sleep on something else. Tosh? So Casper has been this company that we've kind of called out for having a troubling start to the public market when it it cut its valuation right before going public, went public, wasn't super exciting, and now it's pulling out of Europe and laying off 78 people, if I have that number correct. I think I'm going to take it with a grain of salt for what it means for the overall D2C market. Casper just had notoriously weak unit economics from before it went public. So I'm not going to say that D2C is ending as a result. It wasn't just unit economics. It was people weren't repeat buyers. It had high marketing costs. It had a lot of comparable competing products. It was, it was a whole mix of things. But uh, ending on a good note, the company's shares bottomed out a little over $3 a share, and they've now gone up to over 6 So it's doubled in value off its lows, and that means that maybe it's rebounding. So points Ooh. to Casper for not going the other direction. And guys, with that, we're way over time. Oh Thank you both very much. Goodbye. I was really obsessed with biodefense and bioweapons. So that's where all the CIA and morgue and bio and, you know, the, the autopsy clinic. What? No, what? It is. You yeah. all know this. How, how do people not know my random career path?